Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ed Krasnick, my co-host, Jennifer Kalari, coming along in just a second. And this is the show where we talk about mental fitness. We talk about mental health. We also practice skills because without skills, what have you got? You've got what you have now, which is insanity. You have total insanity. With just a little bit of practice, a little bit of awareness, and a little bit of making choices consciously, well, you can really change your relationship with your thoughts and feelings. And that's really kind of what mental health might be. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I like our old friend Marcus Aurelius, who said, the quality of your thoughts equals the happiness of your life. Now, he was a million laughs. He cracked me up, Marcus Aurelius. He was a Stoic, which I guess my uncle Saul was. He spoke once, I think, in his life, and, and it was to pass the rye bread. That was what he said. So on today's show, we have a big show. We have really a tremendous comedy writer, like one of the best in the business. Wonderful writer, Emmy-winning comedy writer for shows like Will and Grace and many, many other shows. I have also seen this man wearing a talus in a temple on the high holidays. This is the great Alex Hirschlag. Alex will be joining us shortly. Very happy to have him. Always like talking to him. I haven't talked to him in a little while, so this will be great. Now, today's show is brought to you by the new show, Celebrity Dream Reenactment. It's a show where viewers get to share and cast their actual dreams with celebrity guests and have those dreams interpreted by a mixed panel of experts. You've had a dream where someone is chasing you. Well, this week, that someone is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Your father is trying to drown you in a tub. It's symbolic. And welcome your dad, Sir Anthony Hopkins. You were swimming underwater in your underwear in junior high school? Well, there's a lifeguard played by Reese Witherspoon. It's not a complete nightmare. It's celebrity dream reenactment. Follow your dreams Fridays at 8. Okay. We always like to welcome people no matter what emotional state they're in. Here now, emotional shout-outs. If your social media feed has sports and monkeypox, welcome. If you rig your Fitbit to count your 12-step meetings, welcome. If everything in your house has turned into some type of gummy, welcome. If your morning workout includes a weeping willow tree pose, welcome. And if you think colleges should upgrade their programs like streaming services and you're excited by your new uh, university, Harvard Plus, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you, always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And now it's time once again, ladies and gentlemen, for the conquistador of cognitive rehearsal, the Nostradamus of neurons, the forewoman of the frontal lobe, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, welcome Thank to the program. You. Those were all new. Yeah, we're really trying. And I can hear your, your dog is reacting to the forewoman of the uh, frontal lobe. He doesn't appreciate that, but I understand it. Jennifer, I want to talk to on today's show a little bit about okay. repair, about when you react, how do you repair, and what kinds of things go into this process? Because we all 
have moments when we react in life, whether it's our kids, whether it's a stressful situation, whether it's a coworker, or whether it's just ourselves. What are some things to consider when as to how you can best repair these That's things? That's a really good topic. So, I mean, our goal really is to, especially with our loved ones, to respond to them instead of react to them. But there's a lot of things that go on that way, that, that, you know, in order to, to manage that. So your own sense of being your emotional regulation, right? Knowing how you're feeling, using strategies to keep yourself relatively calm will actually really help because if somebody walks in at the wrong moment, after you've just had another moment, they're going to get it. And it's going to be a very different experience if you hadn't been upset about it, right? So we everything's intersubjective. So we're sort of reacting to each other all day long. We're interacting with everyone based on our own successes and failures and fears, some of the deep stuff, but also some of the surface stuff. Like, do we have a good sleep last night? Do we have our coffee yet? Do we have a fight with our teenage daughter in the car? And so just knowing throughout the day, where, where am I on my emotional scale? Am I at an eight? Because if I'm at an eight, I got to calm myself down because somebody you know walking towards me is not going to get the best of me. So really just knowing kind of where you are emotionally helps a lot. And if you're at a high number, use some strategies to get yourself to a lower number. And when you blow it, because we all do from time to time, you go back and you repair. And you say, you know what, yesterday when I, you know, if it's your child and I yelled at you and told you to go live at the neighbors, I didn't actually stop and think about how upset you were that you had to wear whatever. It's like going, it's taking some time afterwards to think about what you think that person was going through. What could their perspective has actually been? Step into their shoes, metaphorically, and then go back and repair. And beautiful things can happen from that. Some really wonderful things can happen from that. I think some of the best things happen, and that's because that's when honesty opens up. And then it also gives the other person license to say what they experienced and say what they felt without reservation, because you're being vulnerable. You're being real. You're saying, look, this happened. Today, for example, I was on a chat with a lot of company people all over the world. And I didn't think that the people on the chat, I thought it was just my little group. And so I made a comment that, you know, could have been interpreted as Mm -hmm. inappropriate. I went through Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five (laughs) stages in like two seconds. I did. I thought it was going to be, you know, it's how your brain works. I thought I was going to be killed. I thought I was going to lose my job. I'm dead. I'm going to, I'll never work again, you know. And I started my apologizing, my, what I would call my Batman villain is called the backpedaler <laughs> and he backpedals on everything. So, you know, just different ways of, of repairing things. Now, let's say that I, I'm not saying that I did this, but of course I have done this in the past, but let's say I just mm-hmm. yelled at my family. What are strategies? What can I do to repair it? And is it too soon to, re- you do want to do it right away, but maybe you need to gather yourself first. Well, yeah. If you're angry and your frontal lobe is shut off and you're basically in fight or flight, you're limbically charged, you won't even be able to apologize in the moment. It's, and we, we've talked about this on the show too. When you're really angry and what's coming out of your mouth feels fantastic, like it feels right and you have to say it, you're probably in fight or flight. You're probably not being very nice. It should actually feel like, oh, I'm like, oh, you should feel yourself pushing it back down. That's how you know your frontal lobe is still working. That's the part of the brain that you know mediates this and prioritizes. And should I say that? And if I say that, I'm going to hurt their feelings. And if your frontal lobe is off, you're free flowing. You're just yelling. You've just snapped. You've just lost it. 
and you really can't do anything at that time. What, what you can recognize though, is this feels, I feel, this feels too good. I feel too right in this moment. This, this can't be right. Take a breath and walk away. Look away and walk away. If you keep looking at the person you're mad at, your brain will stay mad because the brain locks on when you're upset. It locks onto a target. So drop your eyes and look away. And if you can, turn around and walk away. Walk away, lock yourself in the bathroom, go get in the car, go out to the backyard, go out on your balcony, do something and breathe and just breathe. You got to breathe first. You use strategies that could get yourself out of fight or flight, right? Just calming the body down and you can't go back too fast. It takes about 15 or 20 minutes to come out of fight or flight. Now, often with couples, the spouse will come out. I can't believe you did that. And and, and you'll start the fight again. <laughs> so it's actually really important if someone's able to walk away, they're not walking away. I mean, you might be to be rude, but I think in this case, you're walking away to actually get your frontal lobe back. And then you can come back and then you can repair. But you don't, you can't do a repair and then do it like a giant, but you like right after, right? Like you have to be prepared to go in and really speak from the other person's point of view how you thought they experienced that, what you heard them saying, what that must've felt like for you to get, for them to get yelled at. And that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of vulnerability and it takes a lot of strength, but your relationships will improve. You will like yourself better. You'll be healthier and happier if you can do it. Well, you know, uh, everybody needs a fight or flight plan. You need to figure out (laughs) what you're doing. It's a flight plan. We never talk, we never mention flight club to people who aren't part of flight club. (laughs) But it's flight club. We all are. We all participate in it in some in some aspect at some point at some time. I'm interested in this thing, and we're going to bring Alex on in just a minute. But I'm I'm interested in this thing of you know we you often talk about getting your frontal lobe online, and that you're in your mm-hmm. midbrain or you're in your frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to switch back and forth, and is there a shorthand? With practice, yes. It's very hard to do though. When your frontal lobe has switched off, so the frontal lobe is the part of the brain that can think and plan and you know take perspective and figure out, oh, maybe I'm talking too much or maybe that was a bit mean. If you can even be thinking those things, you, that's how you know your frontal lobe is on. If you're really angry or and you know snorting and yelling and and it feels you know it, you're not even thinking, it's just coming out of your mouth. You're reacting. You're in fight or flight. So the, the, there's a part of your brain that literally overrides the frontal lobe, it actually literally shuts it off. And it just wants you to fight with the person in front of you or run away and flee. So there's actually fight, flight, please, or appease is another one, or freeze. Some people freeze, but the most common are fight or flight. Well, I love fight, fight, flight, or pre, uh, please. I can't say it, but I love mm-hmm. it. But I love fight, mm-hmm. flight, or please, because that is the story, yes. you know, that is the old story which is, that's yeah. what I, I've done for so, you know, I, I did it much yeah, more when I was a kid, but I do, I still do it. And that's the right into pleasing. And that might have something to do with comedy, you know, trying to make people laugh right away or trying to deflect it, go into a different space. Yeah. That's a really common one though. A lot of people don't realize that pleasing and appeasing and it's, it's oh, so, I'm so sorry. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry. Like that, and we do that to manage. We we do that to manage difficult people sometimes. It's a kind of freezing. It it has a relationship to freezing. It's it's actually intern internally you're feeling frozen, and you're. And these are all fear responses. If you're angry, you're afraid. Yeah. If you, you don't feel afraid, feeling angry feels way better than feeling afraid. But you're still afraid. 
And it's, it's using that very primal survival system in the brain. Really, as human beings, we're, we like to think of ourselves as, you know, as conscious thinking beings, but we're really feeling beings. Mm. We basically are, you know, conscious, intelligent brains walking around in kind of monkey bodies. And our, our bodies are, are this primal system is just ready for war, fighting, famine, mm. aggression, animals attacking us. There's thousands and thousands of years of programming in the human brain that helps. We wouldn't be here without it, to be honest. <laughs> we don't need it in the same way now. Sometimes you do. I mean, you know, obviously if you're in an accident or something's falling on mm. you or something like that, but it, it's much more rare in our world today that we need it unless you're in certain parts of the world where you most definitely need it. But yeah, it, and it's very difficult to control because when the frontal lobe comes back on, then you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. Why did I say that? I'm such an idiot. I'm so mad at myself. And you promise yourself you're not going to do it. And then in the moment you do it. Yeah, I think forgiveness, I was going to talk about that, self-forgiveness and, for, and forgiveness uh, is, a big, is a big thing. There's a lot that you can do though, but I, we're going to explore this in future shit. You know, the going back and forth between the primal and the and the present. It's a skill. It's a big skill. I'll tell you a man who knows how to go from the primal to the present. This gentleman is one of the greatest comedy writers. He's a really fine comedy writer, great comedy mind, has worked on millions of shows, among them shows like Will and Grace and many others with amazing talent, the biggest talent in the world. I don't know how he manage, manages himself while he does that, but he does. And that's Alex Hirschlag. And Alex, if you're still with us. I'm still here. Hi, Alex. Unbelievable. First of all, I got to ask you, where is your mental health on, on a one to 10 scale? Where Are you at an eight? Like with 10 being the, the most well-adjusted, like the, the most contented. Uh, let me just say, it's hard for me to put a number on it, um, maybe six, seven, eight, because I I do have a therapist and I also uh, do couples therapy with my wife. So I think through um, taking care and also doing some of these things when I'm not in a crisis situation, I think is, has helped me. I, I definitely have my ups and downs. I also have like low dosage of Lexapro going through my my body right now. Do you have any on you now? And if I drive, if I do a drive by, can you just toss it? I think it was just COVID, elections, politics, all sorts of things, kind of just beat me down, and and uh, not having a job and and uh, whatever. So it just um, it was interesting to sort of realize that I had this thing, and then when I started taking it. I, um, the, the the lower dosages I take is that I still feel things. I still have ups and downs, but I'm, I'm much, I don't get to a place. That's why I'd say six, seven, eight, where I don't beat myself up. I can have the feeling and then let it go, not live in that feeling, not live in that. Well, you sound pretty, you sound pretty, pretty aware and pretty healthy. So we have nothing more to talk about. No, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You know, no, you're good. Because no, even you're... my, even my eight is a, is a adjusted person's four. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everything is on a curve. What do you think? I'm going to say, would you rather do the? Would you rather confront a relative or deal with Bette Midler in a comedy? Um, that's interesting uh, because I, I really have been working. It's interesting you're talking about anger, about avoiding conflict, which is kind of the opposite. Sometimes it's good to actually say what you're angry about, I think, or, mm -hmm. or, or, or to, to express that. But um, 
I probably would rather confront the relative, though I know Bette Midler is a genius as well, but I, I know it could be difficult to work with. So, um, But I would rather have that experience of confronting and, and improving a relationship with a relative. Not Bette Midler. Well, unless I don't, I haven't done 23 and me with her. We might be related. <laughs> I did 21 and me because I couldn't afford 23 and me. And, and, and what I found was horrific. So, so now, uh, okay. I got to ask you about that because I'm, I know how I am in therapy and it's been, I'm actually going back to therapy. I haven't been in a long time, but I actually am going back and I'm going to try a better help. Not because I want them to be a sponsor, though I do. <laughs> I'm going to try it. I don't want to tell my story again. I want to just be fresh. But what kind of a patient are you in therapy? Are you funny in therapy? Um, sometimes. You know, and sometimes I say, oh, am I trying to charm my therapist? Am I trying to make them laugh? Am I trying? But there are times when, you know, I think you, uh, Jennifer, I don't know you well enough, but uh, I'm I could tell a little bit, like even just you're talking about walking around in our monkey bodies, mm -hmm. um, that uh, if you're naturally funny, I think it's not letting that part come out in a session. Is, I wouldn't be true to myself, but I don't try to be funny. But if it happens, I enjoy it. Je Jennifer, how do you handle that when somebody comes in and they're, sure. you know, and they're performing a little bit? Well, and, and it's a great way to kind of bond to that, to develop that therapeutic trust between each other. It's if you're a funny person, it, it belongs in the room. <laughs> That's who you are. I use humor a lot with my clients, especially the kids that I work with. I think humor is so healing and it's such a lovely way to deliver things sometimes. And then when you have that rapport, then you can gently and with great trust challenge the person a little bit when they're, you know, when you talk about something difficult and then immediately it's a joke you can sort of laugh with the joke and then say, well, what does that joke do for you? What's underneath that joke, right? What, mm. do, what do we need to talk about that that humor just kind of eased that pain for you? But it's a delicate moment. You don't want to shut the person down. And therapy is such a weird relationship. It's like no other kind of relationship. It's very special. And I feel very privileged to do what I do. Mm. But I think there's a great place for humor. But knowing when the humor is being used to deflect or diffuse or to avoid you know, that's important. Alex, it, does, does anybody, when you, when you're working on Will and Grace, did, did anyone, did Max or anyone come up to you and say, uh, what does that joke do for you? <laughs> uh, no, not that, not that nice, but it would, it would be, um, you know, you sort of have to learn to have a bit of a thick skin when you're in a comedy room of, of expressing yourself and being, uh, you know, knowing that you're going to fail a lot of times and to keep on going. Sometimes it would just be no. <laughs> and other times uh, there would be an explanation, but you'd sort of just kind of roll with the punches a little bit. You know, what's amazing about, about being a writer on a, on a comedy that you're filming in front of a live audience is that moment when they need a joke, they want to pitch something else and you huddle together with the other writers and you, you're on the spot that you have to have jokes, you got to come up with something because mm -hmm. we're going to shoot another thing for the 40th time. It's the most exciting, but it's the most pressurized thing in the world. I like it. I like that, that aspect of it. It's, I like it when I, I get one. Yeah. You know, when, when, when one is good, it's very exciting. 
yeah. you know, not performing so much now myself. It's also just when you do pitch wine and it, it bombs in front of the audience, I start like dying inside a little bit. But it's also if you're with people that you trust, sometimes the funniest thing is when something doesn't work well. And people looking at you making fun and, and you making fun of other people whose things don't work. It's kind of uh, um, if you're with people that you trust and that know what you're going through, it, it, failure in that type of situation can, can actually be really funny. Who encouraged you as a kid and where did humor come from? Where did it come from in your family and, and how was it? How were you encouraged and who got you as a kid? I would say that my family was very funny, especially my dad and my dad's side of the family. And comedy was, or I don't know if comedy, but being funny, it was very valued, especially like around us, like if we were having Passover, Passover Seder, everybody tried to tell jokes, the grownups, and then the kids tried to emulate the yeah. the grownups telling jokes. Or, or, or it was definitely an important part of it, all of our personalities. And I think in some ways, and uh, this is something I'd like to hear from you, Jennifer, too, I think... Being a comedy writer or being comedy would have been something my dad really would have liked to have done and mm. could have been a dream of his. And I think in some ways I fulfilled that. I, I, I did his dream. And I think of that a little bit like if my kids are doing acting, things that I, I didn't pursue, that they may go into something or Zoe being uh, my daughter, Zoe being a, a writer of, a, mm-hmm. you know, write a novelist or something that it would be like, oh, she's getting to to extend in some ways in, in, in a positive way, a family thing, like, Oh, here's something I didn't get to do. And, and my kids are doing it. And I think for my dad, I think he took a lot of pride that I didn't hear a lot of times, from him, but uh, of that I got to do this and that I was doing this. Wow. That's real parental love. And that's really healthy too. When you're not jealous of your kid or bitter that it didn't happen to you, just literally, have such joy that they're experiencing something and so proud of them. That's so lovely. And that's so good for your kids too. I, I would say that the thing that they would do sometimes, would be, they wouldn't tell me, they would just say, Oh, your brother's so funny or everyone else is so funny. But then I would find out that they would be telling other people how proud right. they were of me or of, of uh, and that my dad would be wearing like a Will and Grace shirt through like a, uh, Boynton Beach, Florida, or something. And, uh, <laughs> well, often parents worry that their kid is going to get, you know, conceited or a mm-hmm. big head, and they'd be harming them somehow by telling them how great they are. And the truth is, that you don't really. I mean, if you're if you're saying to your kid, "You're the best," and nobody's better than you, and that's not true. And you know, parents raise their kids all the time, saying, "You can do anything," and no. <laughs> No, you can't. I'm sorry, that's not true. That can be harmful. But if, if your child is truly talented and you don't want that to be their whole identity, there's lots of other parts to your kids and to you, I'm sure. But telling them that you're proud of them and you love their jokes and you just think it's awesome where they are can only do good. I think I'm proud of who you are. And when I say who, I'm not sure I'm talking to. But overpraising. This is something that's pretty common mm-hmm. in parenting these days. Yeah. Where yeah. does that come from and what? how can you kind of curb I don't know. it? You know, things, it's funny. It, things shifted about 25 or 30 years ago. It went from like, I don't know, back in the 60s or 70s, the Dr. Spock thing, which is like, don't baby your kids and shove a mm. towel under the door if they're crying and, you know, don't <laughs> turn them into giant babies. Yeah. That was like <laughs> crazy. And I think there was like a really huge swing from that. And parents just decided, I don't want that for my mm. kids. 
everything's a pendulum, right? So it's, it's just swung so far in the last 30 years where kids are telling their parents what to do and being involved in big purchases in the family mm. and then wondering why, and then parents are wondering why their kids are out of control. It's your, I mean, I always say to parents, you're, you're not actually a parent. You're actually a substitute frontal lobe. That's mm. your job. You're mm. a frontal lobe deciding what's important, prioritizing, motivating, get out of bed, get into bed, get in the car, get out of the car, do your homework. Like you're the frontal lobe until your kids have one. And that is not a reliable frontal lobe until they're about 18. So parenting is really hard, but we sort of for a while forgot that, that we were frontal lobes and let our kids make all kinds of decisions. And as a result, and this is certainly pre-COVID, kids' anxiety was through the roof, mental health issues were through the roof, behavioral issues, emotional regulation issues, because the kids felt like they were in charge. And it's interesting, I talk about, and it's different now because kids don't even watch TV anymore, but when I was a kid or when we were kids, there were shows where there was nice family hierarchy. There was chaos, things would happen, but the parent had the answers or the grandparent or some nice neighbor. Like there was an idea that adults actually knew what they were doing. And then there was a whole era, probably 20 or 30 years ago, where the shows were just kids running everything. The adults were all idiots. Like the parents were just ridiculous people, especially the dads were just ridiculous. And kid, the whole generation of kids kind of grew up thinking adults were, you know, complete idiots. <laughs> That's a problem. Mm. And parents didn't know what to do because you were told, oh, you can't, timeouts are bad and don't say no. And, and so it swung the other way. And I think it's really important to have that balance. You're a frontal lobe. You have to be very loving and very understanding and really warm to your kids because they need that. They need you. But you have to be a good frontal lobe. No is not a bad word with kids. They need it. How are you with that, Alex? I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm the greatest with no. I'm not the greatest either, though it, it resonates what you're saying. You know, I, I what's hard for me sometimes, and that I've worked on, I think I've gotten better at, is sometimes I would not say no when I wanted to, and then when I finally did, it would come out of anger, and yeah. I would not yeah. like how I, I hurt the person that I was saying no to at that point. Yeah, that's really common with parenting. It's it's you you don't want to hurt their feelings. You don't want to say no. You don't want to deprive them. You don't want them to feel bad, and then. The only time you can really say no is when you're so mad, you know, or they've asked you 50,000 times and then it just comes out as a no in this really sharp way. And really part of it is learning how to say no, but in a really loving way. Mm -hmm. I love you and I love you enough for you to be mad at me, but it's no. Right. Be as mad as you need to, but that's actually how much I love you. Well, I like that statement because you're including how you care about them Mm -hmm. while you're doing it. I think that that's hard. They don't actually like when we say yes and we mean no. They don't. <laughs> what would your What would your kids say about you as a dad, Alex? Well, how would they describe you as a dad? I think because we have them right here off stage, <laughs> so they're listening in a soundproof booth. So go ahead. I was wondering where they were. Uh, mm-hmm. Not yeah. that much though. So maybe I'm not that good a dad. Um, but, uh, <laughs> nice. Though I think they would say that I'm, and in the best way that I'm there, I'm present. I'm there for them and I I do things for them. And uh, they do have a different relationship with their mother than they do with me in some ways. Like they're, they, they will go to her. Sometimes they'll go to her, even if I'm there too, if I'm in the same room, mm-hmm. uh, they will go to her rather than to me. And she's, for one, she's an exceptional mom and just with an amazing amount of empathy and uh, emotional intelligence. And so on. I don't blame them. I think I learned from her. 
and stuff, but I, th- I think they would uh, say that I'm, uh, I'm funny, I'm present, I, I take care of things, and that I, I try to keep my promises. So That's awesome. The present part is really the most important. That's all kids really it's huge. Need. They really do. And it, it's interesting. I see all these dynamics all the time in families because parenting is mostly what I do. And there's a study done, and I don't know offhand, but it's something like only 9% of kids would prefer to go to their dads versus their moms when they have a real problem. I work a lot with dads on how to how to help them kind of listen. Dads like to fix often. So your kids will go to the dad way more than the mom when they want a solution for something. <laughs> but if they just want to vent, <laughs> they'll go to their moms. And so kind of learning how how to, how to do that sort of, I, I teach parents how to use the a, a listening technique that just is just deep listening. And you don't have to have a solution, really. You just have to be there. Do they go to mom, do they go to moms because uh, they feel safe with the mom? They feel like the mom can handle whatever emotions they have and maybe the dad can't as it's much. It's interesting. No, in fact, I know I would not say that because often the moms get really upset by what the kid tells them. Like it's hard on the moms. Yeah. And the kids don't care. There's like one kid just finished with mom and the other one will come in and tell them there are problems. So not necessarily, I, and I don't know. I just, I feel like sometimes moms are more willing to stay in the pain kind of with their kids and listen. Where, where, and this is very generalized. There are dads who are f- fantastic at this and there are moms who are terrible at it. But their d- dads tend to go for the solution. Why are you telling me this? What yes, that's right. Let's mm-hmm. come that's up right. with a solution. Like, why? Yeah. I feel such a sense of responsibility that you're telling me is I have to fix it. And, so, and right. a lot of times they don't want to fix anything. No, <laughs> just no. and there's no it. need to fix. And, that, and that's what exhausts you. What exhausts you is that you think you need to fix. You don't need to yeah. fix anything. There's nothing broken. Or they'll tell you, like, they'll after you've listened for a while, then they'll go, okay, so what do you think? But mm-hmm. if, you, if you start with that, they'll be like, you never listen. Uh. You're not listening to what I say. I love to to help both parents kind of get really good at these skills. So together you kind of come towards the middle. Because sometimes too, like dads often get to enjoy better behavior with their little kids. Mm. And moms are like the kids are running around and one has their pajamas on, the other one took them off and then they're running around the hall and they don't listen. So it sometimes it's sort of coming together and just having both of those elements. And it, And parenting is both. It's loving, listening, compassion, being present. And also being a good frontal lobe and, and calling it when it's, you know, nonsense <laughs> and being like, enough already. It doesn't sound like fun to me. Ed, I just want to interrupt and, and Jennifer just to say that Ed and I are going through something where our kids are adolescents now, which is a different mm-hmm. type of parenting than yes, when yeah. they were little kids or whatever. Yep. But, um, there are times to say no and times to let yep. them make their own mistakes and That's times right. to... Uh, to to let them have more freedom it's it time to hold them accountable right absolutely and a lot of eye rolling and a lot of a lot of that sure yeah they kind of have to i have an 18 year old i have a 28 year old and a 26 year old and an 18 year old so jeez adolescence a big part of adolescence is they kind of have to hate you (laughs) they have to really and because i work with teenagers and they'll be like i don't know why i'm so mad at my parents all the time i just am I just hear their voice and I'm mad. I don't even know why. I feel bad about it. I love them. I just feel mad. And I think biologically, they kind of have to get annoyed with us in order to want to leave. And we kind of have to get annoyed with them <laughs> in mm-hmm. order to say it's time to go. 
right? So, and you'll see there'll dif- be different phases in adolescence. Like boys between 14 and 16 are absolutely awful. I call that the caveman stage. They're just, they don't talk. They're just kind of rude. And how was your day? Ooh, like you don't even get a sentence. Right. Girls, it's more like 12 to 14. I call that the ach phase. It's like, ach, what? What do you want? Like, it's just, they're always annoyed with you. You're embarrassing them. You're annoying mm-hmm. them. And then it gets a little better after that as their frontal lobe kind of comes on, which is sort of 16, 17, 18. And then at 18, right before college, they get really nasty again. I can't wait to get out of here. Mm. I've been counting the days to leave this place because <laughs> they're scared, right? And they have to leave mad. And it's it's just hard. It's complicated. Behavior is complicated. Behavior is never the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. I will say something, too, about this, because I'm going through this right now. There's very little support for a kid transitioning from home to college. Mm-hmm. There's almost nothing that exists. Yeah, we do a lot of that at, at Connected Parenting. That's a huge part of our program. It, that's one of the biggest transitions for kids. Because there is there at the as far as I can see in the world, it's a very it's a it's really a disregarded part of life, and yeah. and so kids are set up to either do to either survive it or to crash. Yeah, yeah, and kids are increasingly crashing. Um, yeah, and it's a huge it's the, well, it's the biggest transition really in a kid's life, and it's something they've been thinking about and worrying about for years. Um, they can't. They sometimes can't believe that it's actually here. There's a lot of grieving and mourning and being sad about your childhood actually ending. It's a really emotional time, actually. So we do a lot. We prepare the parents for it. Yeah. And then we prepare the kid for it. Like, what are the different things you're going to feel? What here's some strategies. Here's how the first month is going to feel. Here's how you're going to feel in the middle of the year. Here's what not to do. The, but very important. It's like they spend all this time trying to get into schools, mm-hmm. but very little time in terms of like. Okay, what if I, what if I don't like my roommate? Like, what happens then? What am I supposed to do? There's almost always roommate issues, but they're actually really important. You learn a lot through roommate issues. It, it's a really important thing for kids to kind of go through. Um, and there's a lot of prep academically, but there's not a lot of social emotional prep. Like, there no. and their marks will almost always go down in college because they're trying to learn. They're learning how to learn. They're learning how to live without their parents. They're learning how to eat and do laundry and go to bed and get up and all kinds of things that parents often overparented because there's a lot of kind of hyper uh, helicopter parenting still. Yeah. It's a big time. Alex, uh, you and I are actually going to go, our kids are going to stay home. We're going to college. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds, you know, when I I went on some tours with my daughter and I was feeling jealous a little bit of, of her starting this. And, uh, but at the same time thinking, I'd like to go again, but I, I wish my mind, like I had the confidence I have now. I hope I had the, um, yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't that be yeah. awesome if you could live life backwards? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to try that. I'd actually like to go to college for real this time. Yeah, that would be fun. Alex, what's something that you're working on, you know, is something that you're trying to improve in your own, in your own mental health and show your work? No. And, uh, and, and what, and, and what, what is, is there, is there one thing that sort of, that sort of trips you up or anything that you're, any obstacle that you're trying to overcome? I just want to get this in. And then I have a, a funny rejoinder. No, I don't. Um, no, you can have a funny rejoinder. I'll tell you, you know, I was, I was trying to think about this and I, you ask me on different days, I'll give you a different answer. Finding the balance between being an informed citizen and getting so, caught up with what's happening in the world that I, I go into uh, 
I, I just feel really down and I, I, I bring my family, I bring my wife down and everything of just saying like, just of here's this other awful thing that just happened. Here's something. Uh, it looks like they're getting rid of Roe versus Wade. It looks like uh, Donald Trump is never going to be uh, punished for what happened. It looks like uh, climate change is, is, is getting worse. Uh, the stock market is crashing, whatever that to find ways of, of not letting these things um, take over my life. Well, can you do stuff like the, it looks like they're going to repeal Roe versus Wade, but there's an exciting name that tune on tonight? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's more, for me, it's don't look at my phone before I go to bed. Don't look at it the first thing when I wake up. I'm just finding ways of of giving myself a break sometimes from, uh, from these things. Well, you know what can sometimes help too is if you sort of look at what's happening right in front of you, the people you're interacting with, the people that you're in the grocery store with, like people are quite pleasant to each other. Like in, it, the, it, reality in front of your, in your real life is is usually, I mean, it's not that those things aren't happening, but it really does help to kind of look at the good mm-hmm. and just think about what's working and, and get off the phone. Like you obviously have to know what's going on in the world, but, and a lot of people do that, Alex. They get up in the morning, it's the first thing they do. They read, and it literally sets the tone for your day, for the day. And then you're upset all day. So limit the phone, maybe middle of the day and only for a short time. And look at other alter, alternative news sources too that are full of good news. Mm-hmm. Well, go to go to squirrel-news.net yeah. because that is amazing. That There's solutions journalism. It's a whole movement. And Upworthy is great. Like yeah. just stories that remind you, oh yeah, we're not so bad. <laughs> Humans aren't so bad. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, good thing, but that's like up to each one of us to regulate, and it's hard to do because the negative stuff is addictive. It is a brain thing where you're magnetized and you go towards it to see how bad it can get, and uh, where's this going to go? And literally, you know, like we we talk about that all the time that ping ponging between looking for the good and the part of your brain that actually tags good things because you keep feeding it, you know, good things, and it doesn't mean to stick your head in the sand. But at least, you know, some somewhat equal time, you know, there's time for both. Mm-hmm. You know, there's plenty of time to to look at something for a half hour. But if you catch yourself watching CNN for three hours, you're done. I actually have a friend who goes to bed with an earpiece in his ear and it's CNN. Wow. Mm-hmm. And he's a really wonderful guy. So I don't know what he knows. But anyway, that's amazing to me. And You know, and we're going to have April on. We're going to have your wife on. We're going to put her in a soundproof booth. <laughs> and we're going to ask her the same questions, and then you're going to win a toaster oven. <laughs> I would like a toaster oven. If you match, if you match. Wow. Well, listen, we're going to do this again, and we're going to do this again, but I, I want to, I, we're going to have a, a college episode, too, with us. Both of us are going to talk to Jennifer about dealing with our kids going I off to college. Is, 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 is Shauna going this next year, or is she going the year? Uh, another year, another year. Not not this year. Same with Zoe. Uh, okay, so we have to we have to get together and, and figure out the, figure that out. I was just in Boston looking at places, your old stomping grounds. That's where we were la- this summer. We have to talk about this because it's a big thing. I, I, I really want to help prepare her for some, help her to prepare for some of the social emotional stuff because it was not easy for me. And it's not easy for a lot of kids. And there really there isn't a lot out there. So I may I might look you up, Jennifer, about some of the work that you do or some of the exercises that sure. you do. Well, you know what? You gave me a good idea. I'll do a podcast on it for my for the Connected Parenting podcast. 
Do it. I have will. me as a have Alex and I as guests. We'll be the be, we'll be the before. We'll be the before. <laughs> All right. Wonderful. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. This time went by very fast. It's a pleasure. It's nice to talk to you. Period. Again, I got to get got to get out there to see you. Alex Hirschlag, everybody, thank you so much. And thanks to Jennifer, thank you so much. And I, I want you to go to Connected Parenting if you can. One of Jennifer's books that's great is it's called You Ruined My Childhood. And it's a primer for... <laughs> You're ruining my life. <laughs> You're ruining my life. Yeah. yeah. Not my childhood. That's another one. That's a sequel. That's, that's my next one. Yeah. Next one. But uh, go to connectedparenting.com and you can find these kinds of books, media, her podcast is great, and also all kinds of classes and services uh, for parenting and self-parenting. And find us wherever you get your podcasts. Go get us wherever you get. Give us a review. Share it. Write us. Uh, write to Ed at makelightmedia.com, makelight, one word, media.com. And look for the good. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.